You're listening to a DM podcast. This podcast was created and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of those lands and extend that acknowledgement to the elders past and present, and also to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. And welcome to Kinky History, the podcast where we discuss all of the dirty little secrets they probably left out of your history books. I'm your host, Esme Louise James. Today, we are going to be discussing the history of the vibrator. Now, the vibrator and its origins are a tale that have been absolutely shrouded in myths and misconceptions, in stories and falsehood. And today we are going to do the work of weeding out the fact from the fiction and working out what the buzz is really all about. Now, it's possible that you've come across some stories about the origins of the vibrator before. So when it comes to sex history, we are generally pleading for people to take these stories out of the silence and hush-hush that they've been shrouded in and tell them and bring them out to the mainstream world. But when it comes to the vibrator, pop culture has kind of done that for us. The origin story of the vibrator has been told and represented in so many big forms of media. There's a film with Maggie Gyllenhaal, who have also repeatedly been told is my doppelganger, so I'll take that as a compliment. Um, where they tell this origin story in a film called Hysteria. There's an episode of Big Mouth where they even cover the story of how the vibrator came to be. And the story that they tell goes like this. That in the 19th century, women were suffering from chronic anxiety and they classified this as hysteria. Women would become hysterical. And to cure women of their hysteria, doctors would give them a pelvic massage. Uh, They would basically masturbate these women um, until they reach climax as a way to cure them of their hysteria. However, this was becoming such a popular and common treatment that doctors' hands were starting to become quite sore. And so to avoid the arthritis which they were suffering from, they invented the vibrator, a device that could uh, cure women of their hysteria so that they did not have to hurt their hands. Now, this story is funny and it's kooky and it's compelling, but it's also wrong. (laughs) It's so, so wrong. Um, And this has absolutely spread like wildfire, this myth conception. (laughs) I like that. This myth conception has spread so far that it has become the work of sex historians to try desperately to tell the right story. In fact, this myth has become so widely spread that when sex historian Haley Liberman actually came out with research that completely debunked this theory, no one would listen. It barely even made a dint on the spread of this story of the vibrator. And honestly, It's a shame because the real story of how the vibrator came to be 
is so much more interesting and so much more feminist. The real story tells of an incredible woman and sex educator who basically changed the world because of her innovation. It is a story of women supporting women and not women being brainless and being masturbated by their doctors. So today we are going to be ironing out all of the various kinks of this story and working out what really happened. How did we come to have the buzzing bedfellow that many of us have today? Or 12, if you're like me. So to start with, we need to cast our minds right back to the ancient world. And as most of our stories seem to always originate from, we need to go back to juicy ancient Greece to really work out the depths of this story. Now, in ancient Greece, they had this theory of the wandering womb. This was basically the belief that a woman's uterus would occasionally grow legs, not literally grow legs, and wander around her body. It would occasionally go for a stroll into the arms, into the head, into the heart, wherever the uterus wanted to go. And the earliest written record of this thesis uh, goes back to the 5th to 4th century BCE. And it comes from... uh, the Hippocratic corpus about the diseases of women. And in this, it's basically declared that the reason that women suffer from basically anything, whether it's headaches or depression or emotional states or back sores is because the uterus has gone for a wonder to that part of the body. They basically just, you know, ignored everything and they're like, oh, okay, it's just her uterus. (laughs) She's prolifically bleeding. Uh, Must be her uterus. (laughs) This condition uh, became named after the Greek word for the uterus, which was hysteria. Um, And as it was described by an ancient physician, the condition would go like this. In the middle of the flanks of the woman lies the womb, a female viscous, closely resembling an animal, for it is moved of itself hither and thither in the flanks, also upwards in a direct line to below the cartilage of the throat, and right or left into the liver and into the spleen, and likewise is subject to travel downwards in a word. It is altogether erratic. They believe that on the whole, the womb is like an animal within an animal. So why was this? Why did the womb, unlike any other part of the body, decide it was not happy with where it lived? What was it doing? Why did it have difficulty staying still? Was it a rebellion? Was it bored? Was it the plain old womanly deviance? Well, different ancient Greek physicians had different ideas on why women's uteruses would not stay still. And one of the issues that was decided was that a woman's womb would become thirsty, which I suppose is quite accurate. I would often say that my my womb's quite thirsty, to be honest. So maybe Hippocrates was onto something. Um, But (laughs) the womb would get thirsty and go in hunt of some more fluid. And so it would take itself around the body to where it thinks it's going to get fed that delicious gummy juice. That's basically the the outcome of that theory. Others like Sorinus didn't think it was necessarily thirsty. They thought it was just going on the hunt of a really good scent. 
He proposed the theory of hysterical suffocation of the uterus. So it does not necessarily just like wander around like a wild animal, but it is delighted by fragrant odors and it is trying to flee away from bad odors. And to be fair, I also have a tendency to shut down my womb whenever I smell Lynx Africa. So maybe there is, again, some uh, credibility to what they'd come up with. But basically, his theory was that the womb was trying to escape, maybe because they didn't bathe that well, uh, from bad odors. And so it would kind of like migrate into the body. Um, But the way to get the uterus back down was to entice it down with like beautiful smelling oils and that would be placed underneath the woman's seat and just kind of bring the uterus back down hysterical suffocation we wouldn't really hear a lot about the wandering womb uh, for many centuries after this thank god until a man called edward jordan came around in the 1600s now he wrote a book called the suffocation of the mother where he looked back to ancient greece and was like you know what they were onto something women do have wandering wombs um and in fact those wandering wombs are the reason that we have witchcraft today So he went as far as to say that restless wombs going for a little wonder were actually the source of why women decided to partake in witchcraft and wizardry. Um, He believed that this condition called hysteria was the reason that we would go over to the dark side to the point where Edward Jordan actually ended up sitting on the trials for a lot of people accused of witchcraft and kind of assessing whether or not he thought that their wombs had gone wandering. He was basically the person who revived this theory of the wandering womb. And he thought that like a retention of fluids in the uterus was the cause of this sexual deprivation. With how far on this is in history, he surprisingly treated this uh, very similar to what it was in ancient Greece. He believed that it did have to do with fluids um, and fluids being retained in the body. This is because of something called humorism. And sadly, that is not a medical condition where everyone just laughs and has a really good time. Humorism was a very dominant medical theory throughout history, particularly in this time. And it is the belief that the body is composed of four vital fluids. Now hold your stomachs. These fluids are blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And really for the majority of our history, we subscribe to this belief that there were vital life fluids in the body and they all had to maintain a certain balance at every stage. Now, Edward Jordan believed that the womb would start to wander around the body if there was too much fluid there. It needed to release the fluid. And what is the best way to release fluid? To have sex with your husband. So let's get this very clear. The cure for hysteria was not masturbation. No, no, no. This was a patriarchal medical condition, and so it had a patriarchal cure. Women who were acting hysterically in a high state of emotional vulnerability and acting irrationally, they were told to go and have sex with their husband. This was the only way they could release all of the fluid that was building up in them. However, they believed that once this fluid had been let out, the womb would suffer if it was not fed some fluids back. 
meaning that a man had to come within the woman. Under Edward's view, women were turned into witchcraft because they were not having regular sexual encounters with their husband. This was the only long-term cure for hysteria. In fact, a woman would actually suffer if she masturbated because she would just be left without fluids herself. They needed to have the kind of yin and yang of their ejaculation and their husbands to kind of bring them together. And it was for the very same reason that he believed that contraceptive practices should not be used as well, because it would stop a woman from experiencing cum in her body. So the treatment for hysteria was to have sex with your husband, which he also saw as the cure for very sad women who didn't marry. He believed that sad women who would be classified as spinsters were so unhappy and irrational because they weren't having regular sex. Uh, The only way to cure a woman was for them to become pregnant and sexually satisfy their husbands. This was the belief well into the 19th century. So how on earth did the vibrator get mixed up in this very dark misogynistic story? Well, coming towards the 19th century, hysteria began to be considered more of a psychological issue than a physical one. We kind of turned away from the understanding that it was a built up amount of fluids within the body and instead believed that it was to do with the modern world and the effect that it was having on women. Women and the delicate little nerves could not stand the fast pace of modern life and the metropolis. We couldn't do it. We were becoming too stressed out. In fact, we were fainting so much in public that we were being given lovely smelling salts to kind of stop ourselves from fainting. And if we think back to ancient Greece and the fragrant odors that our womb used to like, you can see how that's continued all the way through history. So we would smell something nice and that would kind of calm our hysteria. So around this 19th century moment, hysteria is being considered a psychological condition that was on the rise with the modern woman and the problems with her delicate nerves. So in this 19th century moment, diagnosis of hysteria is on the rise. Women are suffering because of the stresses of the modern world. And at the same time, the vibrator is invented. This led Rachel Maine in 1999 to hypothesize, I'm going to stress that, hypothesize that hysteria may have been treated via the stimulation of female genitals. And the vibrator could have helped with that. Now, Hollywood took this hypothesis and pretty much ran with it without doing any fact checking about whether or not it's really true. And Rachel Maine herself, I believe, has even said that it was just a hypothesis and wasn't meant to become this uh, widespread story. But that's where we are now. So even when we've looked back into history about what's actually happened, someone like Haley Liberman, who is the first person to ever do their PhD in the history of sex toys, and that is real queen behavior, when she basically turned around and said, this was just one big coincidence, uh, we barely bat an eyelid. Now, Liberman agreed that 
There are some sources which say that Victorian doctors used vibrators and they used them to treat hundreds of diseases at the time. Hysteria was included. But there was absolutely no claims that were made that vibrators could actually cure these diseases. And what's more, they were specifically instructed to never use vibrators for clitoral stimulation. Physicians were entirely discouraged from ever using the vibrator anywhere near a woman's private parts, as the gynecologist James Carvin Wood wrote in 1917. The greatest objection to vibration thus applied is that in overly sensitive patients, it is liable to cause sexual excitement. If kept well back from the clitoris, there is but little danger of causing such excitement. But what is far more juicy than that was that the vibrator wasn't even invented for women. It was invented for men. In the early 1880s, we have the invention of the first electric vibrator by the British doctor Joseph Mortimer Granville. And he believed that his invention could help with a variety of issues such as spinal disease, deafness, general body pains. And the closest thing we have to it ever being used sexually is that he also believed it could help cure men of their impotence. So the vibrating device would be placed underneath the balls by the doctor to try and stimulate the area of the man um, and get him producing his little spermy wormies. And the fact that the vibrator was only invented for men can basically be illustrated by the illustrations in Dr. Granville's book. In it, every single picture of the vibrator use is basically the doctor using it on a man And they are also really terrifying illustrations. They kind of look like little skeletons (laughs) using this kind of giant device on one another because vibrators were not cute little buzzing bunnies back in the day. They were really large devices that almost like punched you (laughs) while vibrating. I don't think if I was a man, I would want that near my balls, but here we are. And I think what's quite remarkable about this and the fact that vibrators were invented for men initially in this 1880s moment is that, you know, just over 100 years later, really, our cultural perception on vibrators is the entire opposite. There is now this kind of stigma of emasculation that exists around men using vibrators. And it only takes one trip to a sex shop to see that most vibrators are heavily marketed solely towards women. They're pink and they're purple and some of them come in like cute little animals, like little penguins and little rabbits. There's not a lot of vibrators that are specifically marketed towards men. And I think, you know, back in my day selling sex toys particularly when you were talking to men about um, purchasing a sex toy, your cell was never to try and say it would feel really good for you to explore. The cell was always to explain how it would benefit their partner um, and how the vibrator could be used without, you know, making him feel like he doesn't need to be there. Like there's just, you know, there was never a discussion of like, hey, the vibrator will actually feel really good for you as well. Men didn't want to hear that. 
and it's not just my limited retail experience. There's actually been research into male use on the vibrator, which has been pretty limited. Um, but the research does show that the only time that men really use the vibrator is in relation to couples play. So there was this one study from 2009 and it basically found that the prevalence of vibrator use in men uh, was surprisingly high across the board. Firstly, 44.8% of men said that they had used the vibrator during couples or solo play at least once in their life. And this is compared to, you know, 52% of women. So not that different in stats. However, Out of these men who had used a vibrator before, 91% of them had said that their vibrator use occurred during sexual activities with a woman. They are not using vibrators by themselves. It's always with a partner. So why did this happen? Why just over 100 years later, when it's gone from being a product made for men, is it suddenly a taboo for men to use? Well, I'm glad you asked. My guess would be that these commercial products, once they get advertised towards women, the male market entirely disappears. And that's what basically happened when the vibrator finally came on the market in the 20th century as a common household item. When the vibrator got moved away from a torturous looking device found at the doctor's office and a household product that you could buy and purchase, it was very much marketed towards women. In the 1950s advertisement, we can see marketing where women are holding vibrators as almost lipstick next to their lips and all this kind of cursive text and everything. And why is this? Well, because at the time it was generally the woman who was in charge of placing orders and picking up household appliances. So you had to pull for the female market. But these products weren't advertised for women. In fact, they were marketed to all genders and all ages. There was a marketing campaign that basically said that vibrators are fun for the whole family and would make a perfect Christmas present for your grandparents. They were believed to kind of reduce your wrinkles, to get rid of your headaches, to cure nearly anything. You could stimulate it with vibrations. That was the new medical fad of the time. There's a one really fantastic advert. I believe you can find it on YouTube where the modern electrical bed is demonstrated and the woman like picks up a vibrator from underneath her bed and be like, I can even cure my wrinkles while in bed. And then she kind of gives a wink at the camera, almost like the vibrator could be used for something more. I love that. But this was something that was just seen as just common household product that everyone would have. You would have your blender, your fridge, your vacuum, and you would have your vibrator. This is truly the dawn of the leftist agenda. I love it. A time where everyone has a vibrator. So where did all of this go wrong? Where did this sexual utopia of the vibrator suddenly disappear? In the 1970s, one woman comes along and unlocks the true pleasure potential of the vibrator. This queen's name is Betty Dodson. Now, Betty Dodson was a 
absolutely prolific sex educator who unfortunately passed away in 2020. She is best known for her work of her body sex workshops that took place in the 1970s, where she took a group of women and taught them how to use a vibrator to have an orgasm. The product that she was using was Hitachi's Magic Wand, which is also very much still on sale today. And this magic wand was initially advertised as a back massager. Betty Dodson would take a group of women, they would all get naked together, and she would teach them about the erogenous zones of their body and how to access them through vibrations. We love a good vibe. Now, her work was so prolific that it changed the game forever when it came to vibrations. By 1979, the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology actually analyzed the different masturbation techniques that she was teaching in comparison to how other women self-pleasure at the time. And they concluded by stating that the simulation of the magic wand was the most effective solution for women who were struggling to orgasm. Even most recently in 2018, there was another study by the Scientific World Journal that looked at the Betty Dodson method that she taught. This research experiment took a group of 500 women who claimed that they have never been able to orgasm and they taught them the method using the magic wand. Out of these 500 women, 93% were able to climax using the magic wand and her stimulation method, which basically revolves primarily about teaching about the clitoris and clitorial stimulation. Now, Betty's work is truly prolific, but not everyone was entirely happy with it. Hitachi wasn't incredibly pleased that they found themselves associated with one of the best-selling sex products of the age. In fact, in the 2000s, Hitachi actually removed the magic wand from their repertoire but it was eventually uh you know put back in 2002 once they believed that you know they've distanced themselves enough from the betty dodson brigade however (laughs) sex and the city comes along and they drop an episode using the hitachi magic wand and uh, samantha one of the characters in sex and the city who is a sex positive queen go into a sex store and basically venerating the magic wand as the best way to get an orgasm. Hitachi was not happy. You know, you would kind of think they would be grateful for the boost in sales because within a week of that episode airing, Hitachi had completely sold out of their magic wands. But for them, this was the final straw. Solely because of the incredible amount of sales and money that the Hitachi Magic Wand was bringing in, they were eventually convinced to put the item back on sale. However, they removed the company name from the product. The device is now sold solely as the Magic Wand and Hitachi has dropped its name from the title. However, I've probably mentioned Hitachi and the Magic Wand at least six times on this podcast, so I don't think I'm helping them whatsoever. Another story that you may well have heard was that Cleopatra was the first person to experiment with a good vibration. The story goes that she used a hollow gourd of angry bees to give herself a little buzz. 
this unfortunately is also a widespread myth. There is some credence to the story in some ways. Um, Egyptian rulers were reported by ancient Greek uh, historians to have engaged in sexual activities with animals, such as alligators, as a show of their power and superiority. So Cleopatra doing that with bees would fall under that category. Uh, We also know that women's self-pleasure was something that was very well known in ancient Egypt. In the remaining fragments of the Turin erotic papyrus, which is basically one of the oldest um, depictions of various sexual acts that we have, uh, the second oldest oldest in the entire world, um, which comes from ancient Greece, shows a woman using a vase, kind of sitting on top of the vase to kind of get herself off by rubbing on top of it. So the bees and the vase are kind of a completion of those two things. Unfortunately, we don't have any written evidence that that happened. Uh, I think it's just a conflation of various facts. Um, And also a lot of the things that we read about Cleopatra were written to kind of dispel her authority by later historians because we couldn't have an all-powerful woman at all in history. (laughs) Unfortunately, no bees. (laughs) Only buzz. But why does all of this matter? Why are sex historians like myself pulling out their hair every time they hear this story of the doctors and hysteria and the vibrator? Because it matters how we tell history. In linking this story of hysteria and the vibrator together, we do have a story that's really funny and cheeky and great for clickbait articles, but it's also really harmful. It paints women, women who are not that far in the past from us today, as these kind of mindless creatures who didn't even realize that they were being sexually assaulted by their doctors. Women who were being sent to the doctors because of their husbands saying that they were acting out of line and irrational. This isn't a story that we should be telling. It reinforces a range of harmful stigmas, namely about the historical woman's ignorance and ignorance towards their own sexuality. It also presents this story that we're traveling in this linear trajectory from absolute ignorance about sex and sexuality to this enlightened state that we're at today, and it erases everything that happened in between. Women weren't dumb enough to get sent to doctors and fingered. And I think it's time that we stop telling the story that women just gained intelligence in the last hundred years or so. The story that we should be telling is how one woman took it upon herself to educate other women about how they could achieve and take power over their own sexuality, how they could take an item that was in nearly every single household and use it to gain a form of sexual autonomy that hadn't been accessed before. We weren't having a lot of conversations about clitoral stimulation until the 1950s. We weren't studying it on any kind of wide scale. This was just something that had come into conversation. And Betty Dodson saw this issue and taught women how they could achieve this pleasure for themselves and that the desire to have a sexually pleasurable experience was normal and shared between every single woman that attended that workshop. 
She changed the course of history when it came to female masturbation to see it as something that should be embraced and could well be accessed and enhanced by new technological inventions. That is the story that we should be telling. The magic wand, sans Hitachi, continues to be one of the best selling toys today. And for so many people, this has been a kind of gateway toy into a world of other sex toys. We're seeing a considerable rise even in the last few years of the amount of people buying sex toys. In one study that was between 2004 and 2014, they saw a 10% increase in the amount of people purchasing sex toys. But lockdown has really changed things for a lot of people. The online retailer Love the Sales actually compared the sales of adult toys in April 2019 to April 2020, and they found a whopping 83% increase in vibrators being purchased in Australia alone. We are beginning to talk about toys more. We're beginning to purchase toys more. Maybe finally we're going back to that 1950s moment where every household has a vibrator. We now have vibrators in all shapes, colors, and sizes. We are also recognizing that vibrators aren't a one-size-fits-all situation. There's different vibrators and different intensities to suit whatever pleasure needs you have and the needs of your body. This is an incredible progression from a 1970s movement that started with one woman and one product alone. So what the history of the vibrator can really tell us is that we have chopped and changed so many times about who this product was made for. So I think it is about time that we say, fuck it. If you have ever been curious and wanted to try the vibrator, now is your time. Now is the moment in history that we say that vibrators are for everyone. There's nothing better in this world than a good vibration and God knows we need more of them around. Try it. You might like it because life is far too short to go without a little buzz. I have been your host Esme Louise James and thank you so much for joining us to talk about the history of the vibrator. And if you're simply buzzing for some more, you can follow me across TikTok, Instagram and YouTube. Or I will see you next time for plenty more kinky history. Mm. <gasps> oh.